Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 1 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. Yes, you heard correctly. It is time to start a new season, and yes, it is season five already. Thank you, dear listeners, for making it such a joy to come here each week and share some wonderful tales with you. My favorite Irish toast to you all. May you be in heaven a half an hour before the devil even knows you're dead. Question for you. What is a philosophical fairy referred to as? Thinkerbell. <laughs> hey, this one kept me up the other night. The Tooth Fairy instructs kids that they may make money by selling body parts. Hmm. Do you believe in fairies? Dirk Stevens gives us reason to believe. Let's get after it. I'm not crazy. I'm not. I just... (sighs) Okay, so you know how a baby can't breathe until the doctor spanks her? Well, it's like that. Except I didn't get a spanking. And it wasn't my mouth that opened. I see them now. The berries, naiads, kobolds. And they aren't what you think. And now, for your indulgence, I Do Believe in Fairies, by Dirk Stevens. How do you know if you're crazy? It sounds like a simple enough question, right? But when I turn on the news and I see everything happening in the world, I don't know, I just think like, I'm the only sane person left. And I talk to fairies. There, I said it. I take a deep breath and wait for his reaction. Dr. Elcroft leans back, folds his legs, and takes his notepad from the end table beside his chair. But his face isn't what I expected. There's no judgment, no hint of a smile, or any disbelief at all. It's almost as if it's the most normal thing anyone has ever said to him. 
which makes my next question so much easier. Am I crazy? I don't think you're crazy, Natalie. The world is a bit overwhelming at times, and we all have our coping techniques. He nods at a painting hanging on the wall behind me, a formless swirl of color and texture, all blues and whites, like a wave rolling over the shore after a storm. I painted that when my wife passed. I've never painted anything before, but I needed the outlet. I didn't think. I felt, and that's exactly what I was going through. Troubled waters. It's beautiful, I whisper, and it is. The way the clumps of white cling to the swirls of blue almost seems real. Too real. I can almost see the motion of it. Smell the salt in the air. Feel the spray on my skin. Hear the naiads calling to me from the deep. Natalie, come play with us. But tell me about your fairies. His voice pulls me from my thoughts. You're a writer, are you not? Yes. My eyes linger on the painting for a moment as I turn back to Dr. Elcroft. He clicks the button on the end of his pen and scribbles in his notebook. Fantasy? No. But now all I can think about is what he wrote. Romance. I clear my throat and stretch my neck to try and sneak a peek at his notebook. Really? He jots something down, peers at me over the top of his glasses, and his lips curl into a slight smile. This is your first session with any therapist, isn't it? My cheeks burn and I drop my gaze to the floor with a nod. It's all right. The laugh in his voice pulls my eyes back to him. You should have seen me with my first patient. I was so nervous. My voice kept breaking. I dropped my pen three times and tripped when I went to open the door at the end of the session. He taps his pen against his chin and flashes me a warm smile. Trust me, you're doing extremely well. Despite myself, I smile. But if you write romance, why the fairies? Are they part of the stories? I shake my head. No, my stories are all set in the Victorian era. Think Jane Austen. Ladies and gentlemen, sprawling estates and chivalry. But then my smile fades. The fairies aren't part of it. They're real. He doesn't argue, thank God. He simply lowers his pen to the pad and scribbles another note. When did you meet your first fairy? What was her name? Him. I take a deep breath before continuing. He won't understand. I know he won't. He's a boy fairy. I don't remember the date we met. Not exactly. It was a long, long time ago. I let my gaze drift to the little waterfall fountain he has sitting on the table. The soft tinkle tugs at my thoughts. The smell of moss growing around a deep, cool spring closes in around me. I don't use his name. Not anymore. Have you seen him recently? The gray walls of the office darken to brown and separate into giant moss-covered cedar trunks. Not for a long time. Why not? I sent him away. Mist fills the open space under the table and drifts out between my chair and his. Fairies aren't always nice. The edges of Dr. Elcroft's chair melt into the thick loam of the forest floor as he writes this down. And this fairy did something that wasn't very nice? 
The forest vanishes like smoke in the wind. I don't want to talk about this. That's a long story. He lays his elbow on the armrest and props his hand against his temple. I do love a good story, Natalie. He won't like that one. You said you met him a long time ago, when you were a child? I nod and glance back at the fountain. A face appears in the water as it trickles over the rocks, then vanishes as the flow changes. Strange. The click of his pen pulls me back. Can you tell me about that? How did you meet? A tight ache twinges in my chest. I'm not sure where to begin. Dr. L. Croft seems to think about this for a moment. You make a living writing stories. Tell me a story, not about you, about a little girl named Natalie. Tell me Natalie's story. About me, but not about me. I nod. Okay, then this is Natalie's story. Sitting back in my chair, I close my eyes and imagine myself as a spectator only, invisible, watching everything unfold from above and begin my Natalie's tale. Weddings are stupid, Natalie huffed as she stomped out of the back door of her new house and into the garden. Mother had told her this was the beginning of a new life, that her new father wasn't anything like the old one. No, her new father wasn't the same ugly, stupid man-child her old father was. He wasn't the sort of man who would waste his inheritance on booze and floozies, whatever those were. He was a man of means, of position, of quality, and even though it wouldn't be easy for her, Natalie needed to rise above her blood and win her new father's love, because there was only one thing that mattered in this world, stability. Natalie glanced back at the patio, at all the women in their fancy dresses and the men in black suits. If stability meant wearing clothes you couldn't get dirty and not being able to run and play, then she didn't give a toad's booger about stability. She liked her old father, the way he smelled, his rough cheeks, how he never got angry when she lost her temper. He'd just ruffle her hair and laugh deep from his belly. <laughs> hey, that'd be my little dynamo. Turning back to the garden, she marched on until the noise of the party faded into the soft rustle of the wind in the trees. So what if they were poor? She liked the little house they rented down on the wharf. She liked the smell of the sea and the call of the gulls. It didn't matter that it was small or that the roof leaked when it rained hard. It was warm and happy. She flopped down on the ground under a large juniper tree, jerked off her shoes and stockings, and plunged her toes into the cool, soft loam with a sigh. That was probably the best part about her old life, never having to wear shoes. Hello? A voice called from above. Natalie's head jerked up. Who's there? It was definitely a boy's voice, but even squinting, she couldn't make out the source. Me. Natalie jumped to her feet. Me who? Jacob, the boy sighed. You like climbing trees? Jacob. Natalie stepped around the trunk and spotted him sitting on a branch about halfway up eating an apple. Mother did say something about her having a new brother. Are you my brother? Jacob shrugged. Maybe. Are you Natalie? Yeah. Then I'm your brother. He shoved the apple in his mouth, kicked his leg over the branch and dropped to the ground in front of her. 
He dusted off his knees, took the apple from his mouth with one hand, and offered her the other. Pleased to make your acquaintance. Natalie folded her arms over her chest. He was shorter than her. Her eyes narrowed. Actually, he was smaller all the way around. How old are you? Eight. Jacob stared at his hand, wiped it on his backside, and held it out again. I said, pleased to make your acquaintance. Eight, huh? Shoot, that made him almost a whole year older than she was. Natalie pursed her lips. Well, you talk funny for a kid. Jacob's hand dropped. Did I say it wrong? Natalie blinked. Say what wrong? His face twisted into a knot. Acquaintance? He paused between each syllable, as if making sure he said every part correctly. When he finished, he just stood there, staring at her, as if waiting for an answer. Sounds good to me. Natalie shrugged, still scowling. Why are you trying to talk like a grown-up? Because my dad, that's why. He threw the rest of the apple out into the grass beyond the tree. I suck at talking good, so dad's got me in... He took a deep breath, closed one eye, and scowled up at the tree. Elliot execution lessons with Miss Braxton. His face relaxed. So I don't embarrass him at parties. Natalie glanced at his white pants and suit jacket, smeared with sap from climbing the tree. Grown-ups. She glared back toward the sprawling brick mansion with its many chimneys poking out of the gray slate roof and sighed. They mess up everything. She picked up the hem of her skirt and let it drop again. At least you don't gotta wear dresses. I thought girls liked dresses. Natalie shook her head as she pulled her gaze back to Jacob. Not this one. You can't run in a dress or climb trees or catch bugs or dig worms or anything. Bugs? Jacob's mouth fell open like one of the fish they sold at the market back home. Well, her old home. And worms, too? Natalie shrugged. Sure. How else are you supposed to catch fish? They ain't so stupid they just bite an empty hook. Jacob smirked and stepped back behind the trunk of the tree. Ain't, ain't no word, so I ain't gonna say ain't no more. He'd exploded in Natalie's cheeks. Get over here and say that to my face, you slime-faced booger-eater. She stomped, fingernails digging into her palms as her arms went rigid against her sides. Slime-based booger-eater? Jacob peered around the other side of the trunk, eyes wide. It's just something Miss Braxton says. I ain't making fun of you, nothing. Oh. Natalie's fists relaxed, but the heat in her cheeks only got worse. He didn't seem like a bad kid for a boy. Sorry. It's okay but his voice wasn't the same. Her stomach twisted like a ball of worms. She had done it again. I mean it, she mumbled as she stepped around the tree to join him, but then she saw the headstone and Jacob standing beside it. Her heart skipped the next couple beats. Why didn't you say this was a graveyard? Her breath caught in her throat. It was bad enough losing her temper like that, but near a corpse? That was just just wrong. Jacob's forehead wrinkled. This ain't no graveyard. It's just my mom. 
Natalie could barely breathe. Your mom? He wiped his nose on his sleeve and nodded. She died when I was four. This was her favorite place to be, so that's where Dad planted her. Planted her? Natalie coughed. He planted her here? It wasn't the word so much as how he said it, like his mom was a seed or something. Yeah. Jacob traced his finger over the top of the stone. Don't you know anything? If you plant a debtor where they were happy in life, then their soul looks after you. Natalie swallowed hard. She didn't know anything about planting corpses. All she knew about the dead she learned from her father, the way his body bobbed like a cork on the water beside the pier. How white bones look once the gulls peck the flesh away. How even though half the skin could be missing and she could still recognize his face. That even now, she could still feel his rough, unshaven cheek against hers when she thought about him. As if he were still there, still with her, holding her close, and whispering how much he loved her in her ear. Dr. Elcroft stops scribbling. The sudden silence draws me from the memory, and by the time he clears his throat, Jacob, the juniper tree, even the inlaid memory of Dad's body bouncing rhythmically against the pier is gone. So, I'm completely back by the time he pushes his glasses up his nose with his middle finger and asks, How old were you when your father died? Six. When he keeps staring, I explain. Mother said he stumbled out late one night, drunk of course, fell off the seawall, and drowned. Dr. Elcroft's left eyebrow raises. And you found his body? I press my lips together, glance down at my hands and nod. Four days after he went missing, it wasn't pretty. The sound of Dr. Elcroft's pen scratching his notepad brings my focus back to him as he raises his hand to his chin. Continue your story. Pulling my lower lip between my teeth, I tried to decide where to pick up again. Natalie didn't realize it at the time, but Jacob and her had a lot in common. I laughed. No, that's a lie. They had a lot of common experiences. They both lost the parent that loved them most. They were both haunted by the memory. But in truth, they couldn't be more different. Jacob was slow to learn, but kind, understanding, and gentle. Natalie was sharp as a tack, quick-tempered and brash, complete opposites. I paused for a moment, thinking. Maybe that's why they became so close, even if they didn't show it. A sharp pain stabs at my chest. I know what I need to say, but writing any story means being there, feeling the cool air of my skin, seeing with my character's eyes, and walking with their feet. But it's not just a story. I can't console myself with the knowledge that it's fiction, because it's my story. I lived it. I take a shuddering breath to numb the pain, but a flicker of blue light flashes over Dr. Elcroft's shoulder. I blink, and it's gone, but I know what I saw. He's here. He came. My shoulders slump. It doesn't matter. If I don't talk about it, I'm just going to keep on reliving it. Over and over. For the rest of my life. I came here for help. To stop the nightmares. To sleep. And so trembling, I close my eyes and sink back into the memory. Standing at the edge of the pond, tongue between her teeth, Natalie pinched the hook between her thumb and forefinger, 
and pressed the end of the worm against the tip. Behind her, Jacob tightened the collar of his bright orange life vest around his neck. He didn't say nothing about hurting him. Natalie closed one eye, pushed the hook into the worm and fed it through its body. How'd you think it was going to get on the hook? She turned around so he could watch. See, it's like putting on a sock. About halfway through, she pushed the hook out through the side and let go. The worm thrashed and Jacob's face went from pale to green. I don't, he gagged. I, I, I forgot the snacks. Without another word, he turned and bolted for the house. Natalie's whole body tensed. Jacob Everett Wilson? She dropped the pole, picked up a rock, and flung it at him as hard as she could. You big baby, she sputtered. You get back here. The rock bounced harmlessly on the lawn, less than halfway to her target. Jacob didn't even look back. Fine, she shouted and snatched up the pole. All the fish are mine, do you hear me? Mine. She flumped down on the grass and cast the hook into the water. Breathing hard, she tossed an angry glare at the house. Stupid. What kind of boy gets all weird about killing worms anyway? Without waiting for a bite, she pulled back in the line and threw it out again. Hard. Wearing that stupid life vest was bad enough, but this... This was too much. He was nothing but a girl in pants. That's what. Just a spoiled little rich kid that never had to do anything himself. Natalie snorted. If he had, maybe he wouldn't be such a Nancy. Shaking, she reeled in the line, jumped to her feet, and threw down the rod. What he really needed was a good whooping. Well, she could fix that. Just the thought made her vision blur. She marched back to the house, arms locked at her sides, hands balled into fists, ready to knock the sissy right out of him. She kicked open the door to the kitchen, not even caring if the cook was there, and stormed into the house. Jacob, get over here, right now. She stomped past the oven and turned to run up the servant's stairs, but then caught a glimpse of bright orange out of the corner of her eye and froze. There he was, sitting in a chair beside the stove, a half-eaten apple in his hand, staring off at something on the wall behind her. Natalie glanced over her shoulder to see what he was looking at, but there was nothing there, just a blank white wall. Cheeks on fire, she turned back to face him. Look at me. Jacob didn't move, not even his eyes. Natalie's fists shook. I said look at me. Without thinking, she slammed her fist into his nose. Jacob's head rolled back and kept rolling. It tipped off the collar of his vest, fell from his shoulders, and hit the floor with a dull thud. Natalie's whole body went numb. Jacob? She blinked down at his head, then at the headless body in the chair, apple still in hand. Tingles pricked in her chest, cold daggers that stabbed at her heart, but somehow kept her from feeling any emotion at all. What have you done? Mother's soft whisper raked down her spine like molten lead. I, I, Natalie sputtered, unable to take her eyes from Jacob. You killed him, Mother hissed. All the emotions Natalie wasn't having slammed together like a tidal wave. I didn't mean to, she sobbed. I just wanted him to. But the words got stuck in her throat and came out as a trembling moan. He was dead. She killed him. Her own brother. She killed Jacob. 
Mother kneeled down in front of her and pulled her close. Shh, shh, child. Tears profit nothing. Natalie tried to choke them down to keep the tears inside like Mother taught her, but she couldn't. She just couldn't. Hush now. Gripping her by the shoulders, Mother pushed her back to arm's length. You are my daughter, Natalie, and I don't want to see you in prison. Prison? Natalie's blood went cold. She had heard some of the sailors talk about prison and all the terrible things that happened there. Mother glanced over at Jacob's body and her eyes narrowed. You know what happens to little girls in prison, don't you? What the men do to them? Natalie's stomach clenched. She didn't know. But the way Mother said it told her she didn't want to. Mother, help me, she gasped. Please. Mother's fingernails dug into her shoulders. Only if you do exactly as you're told. Swear it on Jacob's soul. I swear, Natalie sniffed. A smirk pulled at the corner of Mother's mouth, the way it always did when she was thinking hard. Your father won't be home until evening. Lucky for you, I gave the house staff the day off, but the groundskeepers are still here. Now, hurry and lock all the doors, draw the curtains, and then come back. We have work to do. Natalie? Dr. Elcroft sighs and the memory shatters. He pushes his glasses up his nose with the hand holding the pen. I can't help you if you aren't prepared to be completely honest with me. I am being honest, I answer, but a twinge of blue light flutters to Elcroft's side. It pauses, and a little boy, no bigger than my thumb wearing a white suit, appears hovering a few inches above the doctor's shoulder. The fairy flashes me a sheepish smile and waves. Hey, long time. I don't react. I can't react. I keep my gaze focused on Elcroft, refusing to make eye contact with the fairy even as he folds his iridescent blue wings behind his back and lands right beside the doctor's head. You punched off Jacob's head? Elcroft's hand slides to the corner of his mouth. I nod. That's what happened. He takes a deep breath in through his nose and straightens up in his chair. The fairy boy bends over and squints at Elcroft's notes. Oh boy, early childhood trauma, possible bouts of... His tiny face scrunches up like a prune. Schizoparania? He glances up at me. Did I read that right? Somehow, I managed to ignore him. That's the honest truth? Elcroft asks. It is. I lick my lips. He doesn't understand and I really don't want to explain it to him. Not with the fairy here. But I have to, if only to put all this behind me. Look, I know it's impossible now, but I was a seven-year-old girl. And you have to understand, my mother was a very cruel woman and extremely good at manipulating people. Yeah, she was. The fairy chimes in. I wince. I know I'm the only one who can see or hear him, which actually makes it worse. I have to pretend he's not there and pray he doesn't decide to do anything but talk. I didn't know what actually happened until much later. I take a deep breath. Here we go. You see, Jacob was older than me and the natural son, and so if anything happened to stepfather, Jacob would be the one to inherit his fortune. 
I shake my head. It was only a matter of time before Mother found a way to get rid of him, just like she did my real father, but she acted sooner than she planned. Elcroft's expression doesn't change, but the energy of the room shifts. What do you mean? I... Without meaning to, my eyes flick to the fairy, now seated on Elcroft's shoulder, watching me intently. Listening. I mean that she found out Stepfather was sleeping with one of the butlers. If it had been with one of the maids, or even the cook, that would have been bad enough, but Mother took it as a double insult. Not only did he reject her, but that he was so disgusted with her that she turned him against women in general. There was no way she was going to let that pass, not even for a $40 billion fortune. 48, the fairy sighs. The doctor's brow furrows, but the question I'm expecting, the one I've always wondered about, the how did a poor shrimper's wife, like your mother, ever meet a billionaire, let alone marry him, never comes. Instead, his mouth puckers for a moment, and he asks something even worse. How do you know she killed your biological father? I'm not ready to answer that. I found out later. I waved my hand to shoo away the question. He makes another note. I'm having trouble understanding how this ties into your being able to punch Jacob's head right off his shoulders. Because it wasn't attached. Elcroft twitches at my response, but he doesn't say anything, so I continue. The cook kept the apples in a bin near the back of the pantry, but that day it was almost empty. Mother caught him bent over the edge, reaching for one in the far corner. She snatched the cleaver from the rack of knives the cook had hanging over the table and lobbed off his head before he even knew she was there. But people are like chickens. When you cut off their heads, they don't die right away. Jacob got to feel the searing hot pain in his neck when his head fell free, taste the blood in his mouth, and watch Mother pin his flailing body against the side of the bin to keep the blood spurting from his neck contained, before it all went dark. Once the blood stopped, once he stopped kicking, Mother drug his body over to the chair, propped him up, used the straps of the life vest to tie him to the back of the chair, put an apple in his hand, and balanced his head on the collar. I fix Elcroft in my gaze. She wanted me to think I killed him. Dr. Elcroft stares at me for a moment in silence before clearing his throat. Why and how do you know any of this? I scratch my temple. He's jumping ahead again. Someone who was there told me. Your mother? Elcroft asks. No. I nod at the fairy seated on his shoulder. Him, the fairy boy. Elcroft's glasses slide down to the end of his nose as he looks at me. The fairy you mentioned before? I watch the fairy's wings flick and offer a silent nod in response. Elcroft scribbles something in his notebook. The fairy leans over, scans the notepad, and smirks at me. Ooh, he underlines schizophrenia three times. Guess who's flying over the cuckoo's nest? You. Shut up. I hiss under my breath. I don't need this. Not now. Not anymore. Dr. Elcroft's gaze jumps up from the paper and my blood goes cold. He heard me. 
I clear my throat to try and pass it off as a cough, but I'm not sure he buys it. Not until he leans back and says, Why don't we get back to the story? Let's go to where you meet your little friend. He's not my friend. Out of the corner of my eye, I watch the fairy's wings sag and my shoulders slump. He's more than that. He's my protector, my benefactor. Actually, he's the only family I have. I can't jump ahead or it won't make sense. Elcroft motions for me to continue. We have work to do. I repeat, press my fingertips together and sink back into the story. Tears clouded Natalie's vision as she ran through the house, locked all the doors and pulled the drapes closed. She tugged the gap between the parlor curtains together. A dried up apple core fell from the windowsill and rolled up between her feet. Jacob, her voice cracked. He was always leaving his cores laying around. Natalie bent down, picked it up, and stared at the shriveled brown shape in her hand. He would never eat another apple ever again. The thought pushed the ache up from her chest. It slammed into the lump in her throat, and all the tears she had been trying to keep inside exploded out of her in a deep, shuddering moan. He would never eat anything ever again. Never speak. Never breathe. And it was all her fault. She fell to her knees, gasping for air between her cries. Natalie? Mother called from the kitchen. For heaven's sakes, stop that and get in here. Choking, Natalie tried to stifle her moans, but she couldn't. Jacob was dead. He'd never smile again, or laugh, or anything, and all because she couldn't control her temper. One? Mother growled. Two? Lightning raced through Natalie's veins. Mother was counting. Somehow, Natalie managed to choke out. Coming! Struggled to her feet and staggered to the kitchen. She never knew how far Mother would count or what she'd do when she stopped, but something told her she didn't want to. Yes, Mother. Chest still heaving, Natalie wiped her tears on her sleeve and stepped through the doorway. Cheat on me, will he? Mother fumed as she bent over the table, over Jacob's naked body laid out on top, all except for his head. She straightened up when she saw Natalie and pointed a bloody knife at the huge trash can sitting in the corner. Bring that here and get more of those big black bags from the pantry. Fingers numb, Natalie stumbled over to the trash can and drug it to the table. Well, I'll fix him. Mother reached inside Jacob's stomach with both hands, pulled out a red mass of what Natalie thought looked like ropes, and dropped them into the trash can. I'll fix him, all right. Mother laughed. I'll fix him dinner. Stop. At Elcroft's voice, I shake off the memory. Are you certain you want to go into this? His voice is level as ever, but his face is pale and his hands shake. This can't be an easy memory, and there is no shame in pacing yourself. I know, but I have to. I have to say it out loud just to let it out, just so I don't have to carry it around inside my head. I toss him a tiny smile, hoping he understands. He takes a deep breath. I'm here for you, Natalie. If it helps to talk about it, by all means do so. But only if you feel comfortable sharing. I'm not sure he really gets it, but he's not stopping me either, which I guess is close enough. 
I shift my gaze to the fairy watching me from his shoulder with big shining eyes and continue. Mother hummed as she worked, removing the skin from each section as she went, rather than skinning him whole. First the arms, then the shoulders. The forearms, she said, were too full of tendons, and rather than skinning them, removed them at the elbow. I shudder, remembering the way she had cut the ends of his muscles free from the bone, bent his elbow backwards until it popped, then slid her knife between the bones to sever the tissue holding the joint together, all the while humming sea shanties. She had me fetch a roll of butcher's paper from the pantry, tape, a sharpie, and a pair of scissors. She removed each muscle in turn, laid it on the cutting board, and cut them into thick slices. As she worked, she'd lay the pieces on the table in front of me, tell me how big a piece of paper to cut, how to wrap each piece, and what to write on the packages. Steak, roast, whatever she was working on. Mother took the muscles from each side of Jacob's spine. I continue. These she sliced into thick slabs, cut them almost in half down the middle so the steaks fell open like the wings of a butterfly. She had me package most of them, but took the last three butterflies to the stove, dropped them in a large skillet, and smirked at me over her shoulder. That's what we're having for supper. I hope you're hungry. I... I gag and try again, but my voice won't come. I can't do this. I can't talk about it like this. I need to step back. Closing my eyes, I push myself back into the role of narrator and try again. Natalie, I manage. Natalie didn't feel anything. She turned off her heart and did as she was told, but even so, she couldn't stop the tears. She didn't cry. Mother would have put a stop to that straight away, but her eyes did the crying for her, almost as if all the pain in her heart went to her eyes and leaked out. Mother laid three cutlets aside and went back to work, until the freezer was full and Jacob's bones, along with whatever else Mother decided she couldn't use, filled the trash can. Only then did Mother drop her knife in the sink, fetch a rag, and begin to wash. Oh, Natalie! Mother called in a sing-song voice over the rush of the faucet. Be a tear and fetch me a couple of potatoes and a few onions from the pantry. Natalie stared at the bones peeking out of the top of the trash can. Yes, mother. But all she could think about was Jacob. The way she watched him turn from a boy into a pile of meat and bones. How she never wanted to eat meat again. But mostly, she thought about Jacob, his bones thrown in the trash. Like it didn't matter like rotten eggs or used Kleenex. What about the trash? The trash? Mother chuckled as she turned from the sink. I plan on feeding him a wonderful supper. When Natalie didn't smile, Mother's smirk faded. Leave it to me. She nodded at the dining room. Go and get what I asked for, wash, and then set the table. Your stepfather will be home soon, and I want everything to be ready. Jaw clenched and Natalie turned toward the pantry, but before she reached the door, Mother called to her, ice coating the notes she infused into each syllable. And Natalie, this is all for you, to keep you out of prison. But if you ever say anything about any of this, I won't be able to help you. Sharp thorns stabbed at Natalie's chest. Yes, Mother, thank you. I won't. 
Always remember how much I love you, Natalie. I love you too, Mother, Natalie whispered, but the warm glow of love turned cold. She didn't feel anything. All her feelings got chased away, and she wasn't sure they'd ever come back. After doing as she was told, Natalie set the table using the finest dishes stepfather had. She folded the napkins, laid out the forks and knives, and set out the glasses he reserved for when he was hoping to impress a client. She was never allowed to touch the fine crystal, but somehow it called to her. Jacob deserved nothing less. Way better than being served on ordinary plates. The crystal was the least she could do. All she could do to say goodbye. She tugged a wrinkle from the white tablecloth and smoothed it over with her palm. She just hoped that wherever Jacob was, he would look down and see her doing this. So he knew how sorry she was. That she'd do anything to take it back. Anything. My God, Natalie! Mother gasped when she entered the room. I didn't mean... She stopped short, pointed her index finger at Natalie and smiled. Well done. And you know what? I just saw the perfect wine to go with it. She turned on her heel and vanished into the kitchen. Natalie walked to the far end of the table and stared out of the high-arched windows looking out over the grounds. The sun hung low in the western sky, its orange light mirrored in the pond where she and Jacob had been fishing only a few hours ago. Hours that seemed like weeks. Wiping her eyes, Natalie watched the pink ribbons of cloud brighten until they glowed over the top of the juniper tree where she and Jacob first met, where his mother was buried. Dead, just like him. A shuddering sob shook her. She closed her eyes to try and keep back the tears. Don't you know anything? Jacob had told her. If you plant a debtor where they were happy in life, then their soul looks after you. Natalie sniffed. What a stupid thing to think. Dead people didn't do anything. They just turned into meat for worms or gulls. Jacob's mother's soul sure didn't protect him any. But then she thought about the other part of what he said. Where they were happy in life? Natalie's eyes burst open. She couldn't take it back, but she could make sure his bones were buried beside his mother. She owed him that much at least. Leaning over to the side, she peered into the kitchen. The trash can was back in the corner where it usually was, the top of a new clean bag folded down over its mouth. Her heart sank. Mother must have already emptied it. There. Mother stepped out of the wine cellar carrying a dusty bottle. 1937 Burgundy. She took a dish rag and wiped it clean. Perfect. The wine. Natalie's mind raced. Mother wouldn't have taken the trash outside with the groundskeepers wandering around. She might get caught. No, she would have kept it in the house until they went home for the day. And because stepfather was coming home, she'd have put it somewhere out of sight. Somewhere she saw that wine. The wine cellar. That was it. She hid it in the wine cellar. Lip pinched between her teeth, Natalie's finger twitched. She was sure she knew where Jacob's bones were, but she needed time. Honey, stepfather's voice echoed from the parlor, followed by a cough. Natalie winced. He was still sick. Mother glanced up from the bottle in her hand. In the kitchen? Sick. That was it. Farnsworth wasn't at the door when I arrived, 
Father's voice grew louder as he moved from the parlor toward the kitchen. Is he ill? Natalie darted to the table, snatched up her setting and stuffed it, glass, plate, napkin, and all into the linen cupboard. I gave the staff the day off. I wanted to make you something special for supper tonight. And Cookie, well... Stepfather laughed. Too many cooks spoil the broth, I understand. He stepped into the dining room, sniffing, just as Natalie latched the cupboard door. Mmm, smells wonderful. He caught sight of Natalie standing back to the cupboard and stopped short. Oh, my. His blue eyes shifted from the table to Natalie, and a small smile lifted the corners of his mouth. Did you do all this? Natalie opened her mouth to answer, but the words wouldn't come. You did a marvelous job of it. Thank you. But you only set two places. There are four of us. A kind smile lifted his gaunt, pale cheeks and Natalie's heart broke. She couldn't do this. She couldn't let this happen. Trembling, Natalie found her voice. Jacob, she squeaked. Jacob. Ah, yes. Mother sighed, cutting her off. Jacob. Yes. Stepfather glanced up at her. Where's the little scallywag? He coughed, turned back toward the parlor, cupped his hands to his mouth and called, Jacob! Natalie, darling, you didn't set enough places. Mother's voice seemed calm and warm, but coupled with the hideous scowl on her face, it sent worms crawling up Natalie's back. Natalie's stomach turned. I'm not feeling well, Mother. If it's all the same, I'd like to go to my room. Stepfather turned around in his brow peak. You don't look at all well. Should I call the doctor? Mother's glare melted in an instant, replaced by a mask of motherly concern. That won't be necessary, darling. She stepped closer to Natalie and laid her palm on her forehead. I caught Jacob in the apple bin again. He took one too many, it seems, and it put him off his stomach. I gave him some Pepto and sent him to bed. Lifting her hand from Natalie's brow, Mother took a deep breath. But now it seems he didn't eat them all by himself. She straightened up, shook her head, and nodded at the doorway. Go on, then. Off to bed. I'll be by later to check on both of you. Yes, Mother. Natalie slumped out into the parlor, but as soon as she was out of sight, slipped along the back wall, into the servant's passage, and crept quietly back to the kitchen. Crouching low, she watched Mother place the serving bowls and covered dishes onto the maid's cart and push it into the dining room. Bon appetit! My word! Stepfather's voice gasped from the dining room. Darling, you shouldn't have. Natalie crawled to the edge of the kitchen doorway on her hands and knees, peeked around the corner, and her breath caught in her throat. The door to the wine cellar was still open. Pish posh! Mother giggled. You deserve it. Natalie licked her lips, rocked back onto her feet, and quiet as a mouse, tiptoed toward the cellar door. A toast. Stepfather cleared his throat. <clears> throat> to you. A clink of glasses rang out, and Stepfather continued. I know I'm not an ideal husband, Mary, and God knows you deserve so much better. That's right, I do. Mother laughed, and Stepfather joined in. Well then, Stepfather coughed. <clears throat> Here's to just desserts. I'll drink to that. Mother giggled, followed by another tink of glass. 
Natalie carefully pulled the cellar door a little further open, crept down the stairs, and spotted the trash bag. Jacob's bones slumped over in the far corner, half hidden behind the wine rack. She raced forward, snatched the top of the bag, and pulled it from its hiding place. Taking it in both hands, she tried to heft it on her shoulders like Santa Claus, but it wouldn't budge. Come on, she grunted. The bag didn't listen, but it did slide a few inches as she pulled. Her head drooped. She couldn't carry him. He was too heavy. But she could drag him. The mouth of the bag slipped from her shoulder. Natalie turned around, took a step backwards, and pulled the bag to her. It would work, but it would take time. When she got to the stairs, she stepped up, turned around, planted both feet, and pulled up on the bag until her arms burned. Jacob's guts and bones slowly sloshed up between her feet. Rubbing her tired arms, she glanced up at the door at the top of the stairs and groaned. It wasn't far, she told herself. I can do this. She stepped up onto the next step, turned around, grabbed the top of the bag and pulled. Over and over until last she reached the top. Natalie's arms, legs, and back throbbed when the bag finally oozed onto the kitchen floor. She let go of the knot holding it closed and leaned against the doorframe, panting. My, that's the best filet I've ever eaten. Tell me, do you think I might have Natalie's as well? A loud peeling laugh sent a bolt of lightning racing up Natalie's spine. Mother's laugh. Of course, dear. I made it just for you. Shaking, barely able to stand, Natalie glanced back at Jacob's remains. Her stomach lurched. She should be the one in that bag, not him. She was the murderer. But Jacob? He couldn't even hurt a worm. Her whole body ached. Her arms and legs moved like wet noodles, but Natalie pushed it from her mind. She didn't have any right to complain about sore anything. She deserved to hurt. A lot more than this. Wobbling like a drunk sailor, Natalie snuck over to the back door, eased it open, then crept back to the wine cellar, took the bag by the knot, and quietly drugged Jacob's remains outside. Shaking off the memory, I glance over at the fairy quietly staring at me from Dr. Elcroft's shoulder and take a deep breath. It took most of Natalie's strength to drag Jacob's remains out to his mother's grave under the juniper tree, but somehow, after leaving the bag beside his mother's headstone, she managed to make it back and forth to the groundskeeper's shed, find a shovel, and even dig a hole beside the grave. She dug until blisters marred her palms, until they split open and the shovel handle burned like fire in her hands, until she couldn't make her fingers grip the handle hard enough to dig. My voice cracks. It wasn't as deep as she wanted, but deep enough that when she pushed the bag inside with her feet and covered it over, there was no trace of plastic peeking up through the ground. My chin trembles, and it takes a moment before I'm able to swallow the lump in my throat and focus on the doctor. That's when I met my first fairy. I don't understand, Elcroft whispers. How? Jacob told me that when you bury someone where they were happiest in life, their spirit watches over you. My gaze jumps back to the fairy. Dr. Elcroft clears his throat. <clears> throat> are, 
You saying this fairy, the one you told me about, is Jacob's spirit? That you believe he's watching over you? Out of the corner of my eye, I catch his gaze flick to the fountain, almost as if something caught his eye. Yes, I draw, but he wasn't the same as he was before, and he had a new name. I close my eyes and force myself to speak the name I swore I would never say again. Komani. Komani? I nod. I looked it up later. It means beautiful apple, tree, and lake. It's everything I remember about his last days of life. You do remember. Komani's tiny squeak opens my eyes. I watch a single tear crawl down his cheek and my heart breaks. I never forgot you. Never. Are you... Elcroft tips his head forward and his glasses slide to the tip of his nose. Are you speaking to him now? Is he here? Do you see him? I wipe my cheeks dry on the back of my hands and shrug. He thinks I'm crazy, but I guess it really doesn't matter. Yes. I roll my eyes to try and keep from crying. He's been here the whole time. Elcroft's eyebrow lurches up again as he scribbles, but it's not him I care about. Not just now. It's him. It's Komani. The little sprite stretching his wings as he prepares to lift off of Elcroft's shoulder. He flutters up a few inches and his face scrunches up like he just ate a lemon. Natalie, why did you send me away? The question nearly knocks the breath from my lungs. Because you killed her, I gasped trying not to sink into the memory of that day, the day I followed Mother out of the house for the last time. A shadow rises from the floor, a plume of smoke that begins to take her shape. No! I push my fists into my temple to keep the vision from coming, but I can't shut it out. The shadow drifts across the floor, like fog caught on the wind. It pauses and glances back at me over its shoulder. Come along now, Natalie. Don't dawdle. Yes, mother. I cradle my face between my palms, waiting for my head to stop spinning. I don't want to make her wait, but I don't feel well at all. A rasping crack echoes through Elcroft's office, the unmistakable rip of splintering stone. The shadow's gaze jerks up. It raises its arms and crouches low, screaming as a gray gargoyle drops through the ceiling and smashes her like a ripe tomato under a hammer. Blood splatters across my face. The taste of it fills my mouth and the vision's gone. I nearly retch. Komani winces as I gag and pulls at his fingers. I had to do it. She was poisoning you the same way she did Dad. A little at a time so everyone thought he got sick, remember? I remember Stepfather getting sick, his slow decline that went on for weeks. But Mother said it was AIDS, that he caught it from the butler. But... I never suspected. Mother said... Kamani cuts me off. She told Dad she sent me to boarding school. I don't think she really expected it to work, but she needed time and he was too sick to question it. I mean, she only cared about Dad's money. She already been poisoning him for weeks before she killed me. But she found out about the butler and got mad. After I went missing, she needed to stretch it out so nobody got suspicious. Then after Dad died, she started getting worried you'd figure it all out. 
She was already poisoning him when... I shake my head. You can't know that. You weren't there. With a flick of his wings, Komani rises higher into the air. No, I wasn't. But the kobold from the kitchen was. He said stepmother was always adding stuff to dad's wand. Bad stuff that made him sick. The kobold told you? I swallow hard. Just like the naiads told you how she killed my real father? Yep, Komani nods. But I caught your mom myself. One night she was up late talking to herself. You know how she always talked to herself when she got upset? Well, this time she was mumbling about how she didn't have a choice. You were getting too old, too smart, and she wasn't about to go to prison. His gaze drifts to the fountain and his voice trails away. She was going to kill you too. I only killed her to keep you safe. I take a shuddering breath. I can't believe it. She killed them all for money, for the security it gave her, or so she thought. I catch Dr. Elcroft watching me over the top of his glasses in utter silence. His face is a mask, placid, but I know what he's thinking, so I beat him to the punch. You don't believe I talk to fairies, do you? He seems to think about this for a moment. I believe that you believe you talk to fairies. I snort, but before I can think of something snotty to say, Komani zips down to the fountain and hovers just off to the side of the water, seemingly transfixed by its flow. Natalie, <clears throat> Elcroft clears his throat. Given what you've been through, I'd say you're doing very well, but I'm afraid these fairies are nothing more than your mind trying to come to terms with the trauma of your past. You need proof. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. He's a psychiatrist, a materialist. It's how he sees the world. Like Tolkien once said, five senses, three dimensions, four walls. A prison for the mind. A little sigh pulls my attention back to Komani and it hits me. Komani's not just watching the water. He's talking to someone. Another fairy creature. A creature in the water. A naiad. I glance back at the painting and my mouth falls open. I'm not the only one here with the guardian spirit. Komani? It's only a hunch, but I need to know. He holds up his hand toward the fountain, as if asking for a pause in a conversation. Yeah? Tell me about your new friend. Dr. Elcroft's eyes widen as I repeat what Komani tells me, as I recount for him every detail of his wife's suicide. Tears swell in his eyes when I tell him that it wasn't about him. That she always loved him and always would, but that she was gripped by a sadness she never told him about. That she didn't want him to know about because she didn't want to burden him with it. That it was that sadness that overpowered her and claimed her life. That she ended up harming him all the more because of her silence and that she would always be with him, always watching over him until they could be together again. Elkaroff doesn't react. He just sits there staring at the fountain. And when I stand to leave, he doesn't move to open the door for me. He doesn't stand. He doesn't even look at me. He's searching for her, his wife, dancing in the water of the fountain. I leave him to his thoughts and exit the room as quietly as I can. I watch him through the crack of the doors I pull it closed, then turn to Komani hovering a few feet away. Despite everything, all the painful memories, I'm glad I came. Komani is back. 
I think reconciling with him is what I really needed, and although Elcroft may not know it, I have him to thank for that. And with Komani watching over me, I know the nightmares are finally over. But there's one thing I still don't understand. I get why I can't always see the fairies. I sigh. They're very careful about who they show themselves to. But she's his guardian, like you are mine. Why doesn't she trust him? Why doesn't she let him see her? Easy, Komani shrugs. Because he doesn't believe in fairies. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story, I Do Believe in Fairies, by Dirk Stevens. Dirk Stevens exists only as a fantasy, more at home among the fairies as goblins of his imagination than roaming the mundane realm of mortals. He's an award-winning member of the Springfield Writers Guild and the author of many dark short stories, including Purgatory, 2021. Lil's single mistake ends her engagement and her life. Now forced to haunt the man she loves, Lil struggles to find a way to keep him alive. Purgatory can be found on Amazon.com. If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.